Good morning, everyone. I, I'm hyped up now. I, I now know what it feels like to be Bono. Amen? <laughs> we, can, we can get me some sunglasses. I can slick my hair back. It'll be really good. Uh, hey, I'm really glad you're here. If we haven't met before, uh, my name's Joe, and I'm one of the teaching pastors here, and I also get the, the really wonderful privilege of leading our student ministries here at Kesed. I'm really glad to be here with you all. Uh, if you were here two weeks ago before our snow day, uh, Danny kicked off a series called Black Licorice, and it's a series on the beauty of difference. And the one thing that we just really wanted to highlight about this series is if there is an anthemic word we can use, just the anthem of this series is to celebrate. We wanted to celebrate that beauty of difference, that we don't just need to tolerate difference, but that there's a beauty worthy of celebrating in it. And so we're going to talk about it, but listen, I, I want to bring up something hard. And uh, I know, uh, I hope we're building some rapport here, and I just, I need to bring up something that's going to be pretty hard in our relationship, okay? Deal? All right, well, um, we did a survey, and throughout that survey, there was a series of questions like, what do you prefer? And, you know, we had like Nikes or Adidas, iPhone or or Android. Are you the kind of person that sends your food back uh, if they get the order wrong? black or red licorice, and throughout all of those questions, we got a good response in those surveys, and uh, we got to see just the differences that underlie our church. And there was one difference that as Danny revealed it here on the screen, there was one question that when I saw the results, like inside, I had this internal rage that made me want to flip my chair, walk out of this building, and say, I'm done with all of these people. And that was the fact that 71.8 out of every 100 people in our church likes mayonnaise. (laughs) And I remember just sitting there just thinking, there's no way I'm in. I, I knew people liked mayonnaise, obviously. I just didn't realize there was that many of us that like mayonnaise. And I saw the result of that, and I literally just like tightened up inside and felt this, like I said, internal rage. And the thing about it is, is I, it's not even just that I dislike mayonnaise. I despise mayonnaise. (laughs) Like, like if I could wipe out all the world's mayonnaise tomorrow, like with the snap of my finger, I would do it without even thinking about it. If Satan had a favorite condiment, I'm pretty sure it's mayonnaise. (laughs) And... And the thing about it is, is probably the biggest fight in my marriage is that my wife likes mayonnaise and she spends our hard-earned money on it. (laughs) And it's like my least favorite thing about my children, that they eat mayonnaise. (laughs) I hate mayonnaise. What was interesting is a couple weeks ago, uh, our pastors uh, got together for a couple-day retreat over at the coast and we were having lunch and, and mayonnaise got brought up as a topic of conversation and my absolute vitriol, this visceral response, like my, my antagonism towards mayonnaise got brought up. But the interesting thing is, is one of the pastors around the table was like, why? Why do you hate mayonnaise that much? Uh, and they were, I think they were saying it in like a therapist kind of way of like, what's wrong with you? But um, they had asked why, and it hit me. I was like, no one has ever really asked me why I don't like mayonnaise. It was really profound, because it's like, it's one thing to be different, and I think a lot of us sit in our differences, and we're like, yeah, that's just me. But in this moment, that pastor was like, why don't you like it, though? And I realized, I was like, oh, I I think I know why. And so I started to share the story, and I'm going to share it with you. 
And as I share this story, I'm just going to ask two things, okay? One, I'm going to ask that you don't judge me, <laughs> because I'm about to admit something uh, that could be, uh, uh, have a little modicum of, of vulnerability here and is a little bit, I'm insecure about it. And then two, can you just imagine yourself in my shoes? Deal? All right, great, that's the arrangement here. Well, when I was growing up uh, as a kid, I, I grew up oftentimes in homes that were lower income. And so we didn't always have a lot of money, and, and money was oftentimes very tight and a source of a lot of stress in the family. And the other thing that pretty frequently happened, I have, uh, I'm one of four siblings, and, and we have tons of cousins, and one thing that would frequently happen is we had several instances uh, with bouts of head lice. Okay, there's, a, there's an air of judgment here, all right? So, so I was vulnerable here. Uh, how about this? Can, if you're willing, how many people in this room or even online, how many of us uh, had head lice at least once as a kid? Can you just raise your hand for me? Look, let's be honest here, all right? Thank, thank you, thank you, we're in this together. I had head lice, but the thing about it is, is we had two techniques to deal with head lice when I was growing up. The first one was like a scorched earth technique, which was basically just shave your head bald. Uh, I do not have the kind of head that looks good bald. Like, I apologize to all of you when my hair goes away. <laughs> uh, I hated shaving my head as a kid. The second option then was my grandparents would sit us down in a chair and buy the cup, like cups worth, they would douse our, and smother our head in mayonnaise. And I realized this is a thing. I found this picture, that it's an actual home remedy for lice. I thought it was just my family being weird. It's a thing. But they would, they would smother, I mean like cups worth of mayonnaise in your hair. And then they cover it with a shower cap or saran wrap. And then my grandparents would shove us outside and they would say play for, you would have to be outside for at least three hours with that shower cap on. And for us, we were in the hot California sun. And sometimes my grandparents, when they're feeling really sadistic, were like, come home when the lights come back on. And we had to play outside with a shower cap on our head, covered in mayonnaise, with all the kids looking at us like, what's wrong with them? And then the other thing that would happen is it'd be so hot outside that you would just start to sweat. Now, how many of you, do you guys remember those old Gatorade commercials where the people are doing sports and then they start sweating Gatorade, which is kind of a gross like, picture if you really think about it? It was like that for me, but with mayonnaise, where sweat mixed with mayonnaise would drip down your face. And I think somewhere along the way, around the last instance of head lice, I realized I never want to put this stuff in my mouth again. <laughs> and please, I beg of you, if you invite me over for dinner or lunch or whatever, don't do that thing where you like hide mayonnaise in my food and then be like, haha, I got you, because then I'll never trust you again. <laughs> I hate mayonnaise. But the interesting thing is, is as I recounted that story to our pastors, was, what was really interesting is they're all like, that makes sense, right? Like, even though we're different, even though they all are mayonnaise lovers and I shouldn't be at the same table as them, it made a lot of sense. They were like, I understand your difference because they heard my story. 
And by hearing the story now, we can sit at the same table and they can even appreciate my difference. They can appreciate my story. And it was only through hearing it that they understood. Now, the thing about it is, is most of us, when we find out there's difference, we don't sit at the table long enough to hear the story. We leave the table long before there's the opportunity to hear the story. For example, another quick story, um, and you can't judge me for this one either. I have a lot of things you can judge me for, but this is, hopefully isn't one of them. But uh, there's only like three big things I dislike, and I think it's because it's all sourced in mayonnaise. Again, if I had, I use mayonnaise as like a, a metaphor for sin. It's, I'm pretty sure it's sin. <laughs> but I also don't eat salad dressing of any kind. I eat my salads naked. Um, like a good person should. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Everyone, when they find out I hate ranch, it's like they literally look at me like, what is wrong with you? And I also hate vinegar. I can't stand vinegar. And one time I was on this date in college, and we, uh, the girl and I went and we grabbed dinner, and she grabbed fish and chips. And she decided at that dinner to put malt vinegar on her fish and chips. How many of you guys do that? Oh, okay, all right, all right. <laughs> Well, don't be offended by what I'm about to say. Uh, she puts this malt vinegar on her fish and chips, and I'd never seen that before. And I got a whiff, the smell. And the smell of malt vinegar makes me so nauseous, because what I think malt vinegar smells like is what I imagine someone with athlete's foot taking a foot bath right after they get done working out, pouring it in a bottle, you putting it on your fish and chips. <laughs> That's what I imagine malt vinegar smells like. And so they literally, she puts that on her, her fish and chips. I get the smell. I don't want to vomit on the table. So I tell her, I'll meet you in the car. And I walk out. Because <laughs> I was going to throw up. It was, like, it, was like, it was seconds away. It was like a photo finish. I was going to if I didn't leave the table. I walked away from the table, and she's just like looking at me, which meant that she had to pay for the meal. All that to say, there wasn't a second date. I'm grateful my wife never used malt vinegar when we were dating. Uh, but for me, I think that those are, stories for me are just metaphors of we never sit at the table long enough to hear the story of why we're different from each other. Therefore, we never appreciate it, and by never appreciating it, we're never able to celebrate it. To put this in a different way, I think what we all want we all think we want uniformity. We want to be at the table with people who think and act like us. We think we want uniformity, but what we actually need is unity. And they're different. They sound similar. They sound like they should be synonyms. We, we think we want uniformity. What we actually need is unity. And let me explain the difference. Uniformity is when everyone is the same. It's, that, it's literally the word one form. It's when everyone thinks the same, acts the same, believes the same. It's when we're in our same tribes, our same thought processes. We, it's when we're basically in those echo chambers. And the problem with that is, is it's no, like that community of people who are uniform is no different than any other community on earth. That's human nature. Like to love people who think and act like you is just human nature. The most broken, sadistic people can do that. What we actually need is unity. Unity is when every difference can exist as one. Out of many, one is what unity means. And when people who think, act, believe differently, when someone who hates mayonnaise can sit across the table with someone who douses their food in it, 
and we can exist and have a beautiful conversation full of love and grace, people look at that and they're like, how is that possible? And our only answer is because there's something miraculous and supernatural happening in this space that can make this relationship work. And by the way, this is all throughout the Bible, this whole idea that God, God is trying to bring a bunch of different people together to be unified, not uniform, unified. Uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson is one of my favorite poets, and he's one of the romantics um, in American poetry, and, and he has this great quote that I just love, that God is unity, but always works in variety. Amen? That's beautiful, right? God is, is un, God is unity, but always works in variety, and it makes sense because that's who he is. Like, that's the point of the Trinity, that God is a relationship of Father, Son, and Spirit existing in self-sacrificing, self-giving love, that each member of that relationship is different, and yet through total and complete surrender to that love, they exist as one. That's who God is. He's a relationship. And so when we, and by the way, the church gets to be called many members but one, we get to live out the metaphor. We are the living metaphor of that triune God on this planet. We're it when people look at us and are like, how can they exist in relationship? And it's like, oh, it's all because of God. And to show you this, all throughout the Bible, by the way, this idea, is, like the, this drum is getting banged. Like, the, like literally God is trying to tell humanity, I created you with all these difference, all the various kinds, all the various ways. We see that all throughout uh, these guys, the prophets, right? They exist in the Old Testament, uh, and they're trying to cry out to Israel, who are, who are the manifestation of God's people uh, in the ancient world. And they're trying to say, hey, celebrate this difference, because this is what God's doing. We see it in Isaiah chapter 66, verse 12. He says this, for thus says the Lord, behold, I will extend peace to her like a river, and the glory of the nations like an overflowing stream. And by the way, just that word nations right there, the Hebrew word is goy. And goy can be translated nations, but it's not like ethnic nations. It actually means Gentiles. We're not shocked enough for that. I'm just gonna say it again, and then, and then I want us to be like audibly shocked, okay? The, the word nations there means Gentiles. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Uh, the thing about Gentiles is, is they represent everything other to the Jewish people. They are the other. And all of us have felt that before. All of us have been the other, right? When I, was, when I had that head lice and had my head in a shower cap, no one else in the neighborhood wanted to play with us. Nobody. And so I, in that moment as a kid, learned early on I was the other, right? And the sad thing is, is that a lot of our churches have, been, have done a really, really terrible job at creating spaces for the other. And by the way, I am one of the worst at it. The prophets continued, Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 17, at that time Jerusalem shall be called the throne of the Lord, and all the nations, or goy, shall gather to it to the presence of the Lord in Jerusalem, and they shall no more stubbornly follow their own evil heart. Isaiah 56 says this, let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. 
These I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. By the way, if, you, if you've read the Gospels in the New Testament, Jesus, when he flips over the money tables in the temple, quotes this very verse. Because his point is, is that the Jewish people, the, 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 the religious people of that day were missing it. They wanted uniformity. I'm willing to exist in this space where everyone thinks and acts like me. We'll, we'll even do like economy. We'll do business in this room because we all think and act alike. And Jesus flips the tables to be like, you're missing it. You're missing what God is doing in the whole world. And so Jesus flips those tables, quoting this verse to say, this has been the plan all along, that literally God's people celebrate the beauty of difference because it's in that celebration that this community looks special to the world. Zechariah 6 says this, and those who are far off shall come and help to build the temple of the Lord, and you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. That when different people are able to come and worship the one true God together, everyone else will be like, that must be God. Daniel 7, 14 says, and to him, by the way, this is the son of man, this is the Messiah, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people's nations or goy and languages should serve him. And the one thing I wanna highlight here is, notice those don't go away. It's not that they, they get to come to Jesus and then suddenly they're all the same. They speak the same, they, they, they all have the same culture. No, the point is, is that they keep their languages and their cultures, and yet they're still able to come to Jesus. Micah 4 says this, and many nations shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, that we may walk in his paths. And the word of the Lord from Jerusalem, he shall judge between many peoples and decide disputes for strong nations far away, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. This beautiful future day when our differences won't be the cause of conflict anymore. And that we'll grow something better together. That our weapons become the tools by which we grow something. Really profound. But all along, this has been a part of the narrative. This has been the promised plan that God is going to do something by bringing all these different groups of people together, and it's something worthy of celebrating, not just tolerating. But I think our temptation, this human nature part of us, is uniformity is easier. It's easier. We want uniformity because then it's easy to love those kinds of people. It's easy to love the other when we're uniform because there is no other. But I want to tell you that there's a cost to uniformity. There's a hidden cost to it. And I think the church has always paid it without even realizing it. God's people always, always pay it. I want to show you that. There's, there's two characters we're going to highlight today. And by the way, I hope it's okay. We're going to totally nerd out over the Bible. Is that okay? I feel like we have that kind of relationship going here. There's two characters that are parallel to each other, and, and, and oftentimes in literature, there ends up being parallel characters, right? That, that a character will mirror another character. We're gonna look at one from the Old Testament and one from the New Testament. This Old Testament character is the character of Jonah. Now, one thing with Jonah is he is actually, 
he, he's a contemporary of all those prophets that I just read to you. He was prophesying at the same exact time as those guys were banging the drum that, hey, God is doing something and it's through our difference. And Jonah exists in this space as a guy who stands opposed to that, who longs for uniformity instead of unity. And I want to show you that. And just, I'm going to, we're going to hop around a little bit today. I hope you're okay. But uh, Jonah existed around 800 BC, and he was a prophet in the northern kingdom of Israel. Israel had a civil war that caused them to split. And so there was the southern kingdom and the northern kingdom. Uh, Jonah prophesied in the northern kingdom. And around this time, the big bully in terms of a nation on the block was the nation of Assyria. Assyria was the powerhouse of their day, and they were notoriously brutal. And God calls Jonah one day to go and speak to the, the Ninevites, which was one of the larger cities in Assyria. And so God's like, hey, go speak to them because I have a heart even for them. And Jonah's like, nope. And so he, God calls him, and I just have a map just to show you what he does. He's called to go to Nineveh, which is close to modern-day Iraq. And, and instead, he goes up to this little port city of Joppa. You could go there to this day. Um, it, it still exists right on the Mediterranean. He goes to Joppa, he hops on a boat, and he's looking to go all the way to Tarshish, which we don't actually know exactly where Tarshish is, but the, the modern thought is, is that Tarshish is in modern-day Spain. Now, I just want to remind you that in the ancient world, they didn't entirely, particularly people in the Middle East, did not know what was beyond the Atlantic Ocean. So, to Jonah, that's the literal or I guess figurative, end of the world. <laughs> he was willing to run to the end of the world if it meant that he didn't have to serve people who were, who were other than him. That's asinine, right? But he went 2,500 miles. He was, that, that was his goal, was to go that distance if it meant he could get away from them. And as we're gonna learn, he was trying to run that far because he knew God had a heart for the Ninevites. And that's what bothered him. But as we know, he hops on that boat in Joppa. He ends up in, heading into the, the Mediterranean, and a storm hits. He gets swallowed by a fish. Weird, I know. But then he ends up getting spit up on the shores of Nineveh. And that's where I want to pick up the story. Because God, again, says, give them the message I will give you. And the, the, the author of Jonah does a really brilliant thing. It doesn't tell us what the message is. And I want you to just think, Why? Why doesn't the author include the message Jonah's supposed to give? And I just want to remind you, what are the contemporary prophets saying at the same time that Jonah lives? That God has a heart for the whole world, and he does not have an Israelite passport. And that even the Ninevites have a space at the table. We already know the message. The author doesn't need to include it. But Jonah, and, and by the way, the author gives this other note, and, a, and, and biblical authors never add details that aren't important because paper was really hard to come by in the ancient world. It, so any paper was really expensive and really hard to come by. And so any detail they write is really important. And they write that in order to go into Nineveh, it takes about three days 
in order to go all throughout Nineveh. It was that large of a city, three days. And this is what the author of Jonah writes about what Jonah did. So he spit up on the shores, and it says this in Jonah chapter three, verse four. Jonah began to go into the city, going a single day's journey, and he called out, yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown, which by the way, in, in Hebrew is, is an ambiguous word. We don't know what overthrown mean. It can mean a bunch of different things. But basically, if I had to tell you what Jonah's doing, it's like if God called you to go into Portland and cry out about his love for Portland. And instead of going maybe to Pioneer Square or Hawthorne Street or whatever, you just stand on the Glen Jackson Bridge and you're like, Portland, you're terrible. That's, that is literally what's happening here. <laughs> he, he stands up and he's like, Nineveh, you're terrible. Notice, no mention of God. No mention of what God wants to do. No meeting the Ninevite people and hearing their story. Hearing, oh, this is the world you live in. I now understand why you live the way you do and think the way you do. Makes sense. None of it. He leaves the table long before he has the chance to, to celebrate the beauty of the difference because he doesn't hear the story. And so he leaves the city, and he goes and stands on a hill outside the city, and he's just sitting there hoping to see fire and brimstone rain down. And instead what happens is the Ninevites hear this pathetic five-word sermon and there's a revival. The largest city in the world at this point is transformed. And I don't know if we like, can just even register how ridiculous this is. This is the worst sermon in history. And, and some of you sitting in here are like, I don't know, yours might be second, if not first, we'll see. <laughs> This is the worst sermon in history. And it causes widespread revival. Isn't that ridiculous? Jonah literally is the most successful prophet in human history with the least amount of struggle. All of his struggle is self-inflicted. And he can't even realize what God's doing before his eyes. So he goes up and stands on the city angry. And this is his prayer in Jonah chapter four, verse two. And he prayed to the Lord and said, oh Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. He's about to tell you why. This reveals his heart. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. That word is kessed, by the way and relenting from disaster. He just quotes, this, that verse right there is the most quoted verse of the Bible by the Bible. And it's how God describes himself. He does so in Exodus 34. This is who God is. And he's angry about it. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to live than to die. And the Lord asks him, do you do well to be angry? 
he is upset that God has space at the table for the Ninevites. And if we're honest, by the way, it's really easy to judge Jonah. I'm Jonah. And I don't mean to be offensive, but all of us in here at times are Jonah. We all know that there's people we don't want to be at the same table with. We don't want to hear their story. We don't want to give the space and the time for there to be a story. And so we leave relationship, we cut it off, because we think what we actually want is uniformity. But there's a cost to uniformity, and this is what I want to tell you what it is. Who in this story misses out? Do the Ninevites? No, they're transformed. Does God? Does God's plan? No, he's gonna, he's gonna do whatever he wills. He's gonna reach whoever needs to be reached. The person who misses out in this story is Jonah. Jonah misses it. And the truth is, is you and I miss it when we don't sit at the table long enough. You and I miss it. God's gonna reach whoever and whomever because that's who he is. The thing is, is he's inviting us to be a part of reaching everyone, of, of creating unity, of being in a space where unity can exist. He's inviting us to be a part, but he doesn't need us. But when his people seek uniformity, we're the ones who miss out. We miss it, because God's still gonna reach all of those people who are different than us in the end. And so Jonah's story, we oftentimes, when we learned about it in Sunday school or whatever, we always thought it had this positive ending. It's depressing. It's a tragic ending. But that's because the ending of the story actually is gonna be relived through someone who lives 800 years later. That, that second literary character I was telling you about. So much so that this is the guy Peter, the apostle Peter, right? And we all know Peter. Jesus, by the way, there's this little interesting little nugget. When, P Jesus, when Peter says, Jesus, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, Peter, he literally says, blessed are you, Simon, Bar, or son of Jonah. But when you read John chapter 21, Jonah's not Peter's dad's name. It's John. And they're not the same name. And in the ancient world, son of was actually a title that we'd give to describe the qualities of somebody. So we would say James and John are the sons of thunder, right? Because they have these qualities of thunder. It'd be similar to like you guys would call me like Mr. Know-it-all or Miss Know-it-all, right? Like we're not saying that that's my last name. We're saying that that's a quality I have is being pretentious. Uh, but <laughs> it's the same thing in the ancient world. But he says, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. By the way, he doesn't call him Peter. Simon, son of Jonah. Even though that's not his dad's name, because you have the qualities of Jonah. And we see this play out after Jesus dies, rises from the dead, ascends into heaven, and God's like, hey, go reach the whole world. Peter, persecution hits the church, and they all spread. And where does Peter go? Instead of going to the whole world, Peter decides, I'm just gonna hang out with my people. I'm gonna hang out with the people who are all the same as me, so much so that it will boil up to the point where the apostle Paul one day will stand up to Peter and say, stop it. 
Peter, Paul is willing to rebuke the leader of the, the world church at this point. He's willing to point a finger in his face and say, you are missing it, and you are causing everyone else to miss it too. Because Peter wasn't willing to sit at the table to hear the story and celebrate the difference, celebrate that beauty. And so Peter only wants to hang out with people who look and act like him, and we get to hear the story of how God begins to break that down in him. But also the question arises, is Peter gonna be the second Jonah, or will he break that legacy? And I wanna show you the story. Um, It's in Acts uh, chapter 10. And we're gonna be hopping around because I just really want, it's a long story, but I wanna just highlight this in our closing. Uh, But Peter uh, ends up after the persecution, after Stephen dies, he scurries away and he heads to the city of Joppa, where Jonah runs off to. And the question is, is is he gonna run like Jonah ran? And we get to hear what God's doing behind the scenes. So in chapter 10, verse one, at Caesarea, by the way, uh, not a Jewish city, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort. So a centurion was a Roman military leader who was in charge of 100 men. And the interesting thing is it was known as the Italian cohort, as in the Roman cohort, as in the most Roman of Roman of Romans. And Jewish people and Romans did not get along with each other. They don't exist at the same table. So much so that the Romans in a couple decades from this will kick all the Jewish people out of Jerusalem because there was so much fighting. I say all this just to say this detail is is given because it wants us to realize if there's a guy that Peter shouldn't like, it's this guy. But the thing about it is, is this guy, God's been working in his life and he's beginning to knock on the door. And he tells... Cornelius this in verse five, and now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. Oh man, this is like, if you're a Jewish person, a Jewish Christian in the first century, you're like, no, Peter's not gonna go with that guy. No, 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 no. But the interesting thing, I just wanna highlight the hypocrisy of Peter here. Uh, He's lodging with a tanner by the sea. My hunting friends in here, uh, what is a tanner? Someone who tans hides, and a Jewish person's not, to be around, not supposed to be around dead things. It's unclean. And that's just it, by the way, is that we, we're, we can tolerate difference as long as it's the difference that makes us comfortable. So it's not that Peter, it's just trying to expose the character of Peter here. Peter is willing to hang out with people who are unclean as long as it's his kind of unclean. But... Cornelius sends the guys to go get Peter. And while Peter is at the house uh, in Joppa, we read this. The next day as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray and he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. And it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. If you were here for week one of the series, Danny uh, mentioned that in creation, that idea of God creating all the animals of their various kinds, kinds, kinds. And it was just meant to say that difference has been a part of God's plan from the beginning. It's not a result of brokenness. This is that scene recreated in Peter's vision right now. But look at how Peter responds to it. And there came a voice to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, 
by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. He's starving, and God's like, I've given the whole world for you. You can eat anything. And he's like, no, God, like what you created, I know you created it, but uh, no, 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 I'm, I'm, I'm too set apart for that. I don't really associate with that. And then a voice came to him again a second time. What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up once at heaven. By the way, cool little nugget here. How many times did Peter deny Jesus? And how many times does he need to hear this message? Um, Peter's pretty dense like you and me. <laughs> But the point is, is he needs to hear this message too, that God's plan has always been to celebrate the beauty of difference. But Peter wants to go towards uniformity. And so while Peter's sitting there being like, what the heck did that dream mean? Again, he's dense. Guys knock on the door. And he comes out and they're like, hey, uh, you need to come to Caesarea. We have, uh, God told our commander to come get you. And Peter's like, what? And so he goes, because he's like, oh, now I'm, I'm starting to understand what the vision was about. And what I want to show you is just to, to show you how much Peter's heart is towards uniformity. Look at what he says to them in verse 28 when he gets there. And he said to them, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. Just remember everything that the prophets were saying when I first, at the beginning of my message. Think about all those prophets. Was it ever part of God's plan to not be at the same table with people who were different? but God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So he tells them this and he's like, all right, so why did God send me here? And, he, and by the way, he can run at this moment, but he sits there and listens to every word of Cornelius' story. He stays at the table long enough to hear, God's been working in your life. I get it, I get it. And so, Peter opens his mouth in verse 34 and said, truly I understand that God shows no partiality. And instantly Peter came with a small little crew who all think like him too. And God allows the Holy Spirit to start dwelling all of these Gentiles, the nations, the Goy, the very people that Peter would spend no time with if he had his choice. And they see, oh my gosh, God lives in you like he does in me. That's the one thing that we have in common. That's the one important thing. And the believers in verse 45, from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. And I would argue they had no reason to be amazed because if they would have read the story, it was God's plan all along. But again, even Peter can fall into this desire for uniformity. And I'm so grateful God didn't let him stay there. Because what he obtained in the end was unity. What he obtained in the end was seeing that God is doing something in every single one of our stories. And I look in this room, and I say to myself, I don't know if we would be friends in any other environment but in this place. I sit around uh, the table with our pastors 
And I told them this. I was like, I don't know if there'd be any reason we would be friends. But the fact that we can be in community together, it must be God. Henry Nouwen has this quote, and I love it. He says, one of the main tasks of theology is to find words that do not divide, but unite. That do not create conflict, but unity. That do not hurt, but heal. And I would say one of the main tasks of church is to do that. Not just theology. It's to say, how do we create spaces where we can unite and where we could say our stories are different, our lives are different, and yet we can exist, exist in the same space. Um, this wasn't in my notes, I, 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 but I felt like God was like, you need to add this. Um, earlier this week, um, I had a meeting with a couple of the pastors here. And I'm, gonna, I'm just gonna be really honest with you guys about something with myself is, I believe this lie that I am not wanted in every single room I'm in. That if you really knew the real me, you would, you would send me away so fast. And I know that's not the truth, and yet underneath that truth of what I know, there's a lie that I feel like is true. And I was sitting there and I was venting my frustrations about life and ministry to these pastors, and they looked me in the eye and they reminded me, you're chosen. You're wanted. You matter. Despite your difference, despite your story, you're wanted. And I know there's people in this room right now, and I feel it, who sit in here and they're like, I'm so different than every other person in this room. If you really knew me, you would not want me here. And I wanna tell you today, we would love to hear your story. We're sitting on the rooftops longing to hear your story. Because you are wanted, you are chosen, you do belong. And when we can sit and around the table and hear each other's story what begins to happen is we're like, I am for you even though I'm different than you. I love you even though everyone else says I shouldn't. I'm for you. And everyone outside of this building and everyone outside of this community looks at this community and looks at what God is building and says, how is that possible? How is that possible? How is it possible that I, me, a broken foster kid that no one wanted can stand up here? and you could love me. And all of us get to throw up our hands and say, that's the way our God works. And so I just wanna invite all of us, stay at the table, hear the story, celebrate the difference. And I think when we're in that space, God changes everything. So I'm gonna invite you all to stand with me. And I'm gonna invite us to do something weird. I'm, I'm pretty weird, but can you hold up your, the palms of your hands? Because this for me represents a posture of open-handedness, God, whatever you have for me, as well as surrender. And would you pray with me? Father, I just wanna say thank you. 
Lord, thank you for the stories that exist in this room. Thank you, Lord, for all the men and women, Lord, what they've gone through, how they've overcome. Thank you for the difference. And I mean it, Lord, that in any other environment, I don't know if, if the, the people in this room could be friends. And yet somehow through the miracle of who you are, we can love and be in community. So Lord, would you continue to build this community, one that despite our differences can celebrate it, not just tolerate it. And would we never settle for uniformity? And in doing so, as we share story and heal and feel loved and chosen, may we look like you. So Lord, I give this to you. I pray for every person in here who like me believes they're not wanted, they don't belong. Would you drown out that lie with the truth, so flowing with love and with grace. And then we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. I wanna say thanks so much for coming today. And I wanna invite you all back next week as we, we continue on in the series. Thanks everyone, have a great day.